1: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, The Weekly Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and around the world. And as ever, in our time together on this pre-Christmas podcast, we have got so much to cram in. Uh, Where where do we start? Blimey, Uh, you know. Anyway, before I start, uh, here's the kind of format of our time together. Uh, a brief kind of assembly, a notice from me, very brief. Uh, then onto my spiel. It's a bit of a frosty special, this one. Lord, get me frosty, get me frosty. But with wider implications. As ever in politics, every move shines light on a much wider... Terrain than the immediate drama, and we'll try and explore that light. And then, wonderful Uh, questions—a bit of frosty focus on some of the questions in recent days, and then, of course, questions on other matters. And they're from all over the place: Australia, the United States, and all around the UK. So, before we start, a couple of things. Um, I'm going to be off next week. I think you'll want a break. We all need a break from each other don't we even if we're in total isolation well all right if we're in total isolation maybe I'll do one and we should all get together but I'm almost certainly not going to so the next one will be the following first thing Tuesday morning on that first Tuesday in January the key thing uh, to make sure you get it is to subscribe Um, some people told me they haven't didn't get the last couple i'm on a different platform we should all get there are loads of ways of subscribing beyond the obvious ones i've tweeted all the platforms there are tons of them um so do subscribe oh yeah if you could leave a review that means more will join our ever expanding community trying to make sense of the mad crazy world of politics Hopefully all of you who have asked for stickers for the book, uh, Prime Ministers We Never Had, for Christmas presents, have got them. If you've asked and didn't get them, please email me right away and I'll rectify. I've had loads. I've I've made a fortune for the Royal Mail sending these off. But anyway, Christmas sorted for all those who uh, will receive the Prime Ministers We Never Had, uh, from Rab Butler to Jeremy Corbyn. By the way, if you didn't listen to the August one where I reflected on some of the lessons from the Prime Ministers we never had, they are replying in capital letters now as Liz Truss makes her moves, dressing up as Margaret Thatcher in a tank and Rishi Suman briefing that he doesn't believe further constraints are necessary, uh, manoeuvring in clunky, unsubtle ways. Not always a route to number 10. Anyway, uh, in August I did uh, lessons uh, on that. For those of you who didn't hear it, it'll be there. Joy of podcasts is they don't go away. Now, thank you for all of that, Frosty, and what that means. By the way, there's so many themes—the by-election, but they all interconnect, of course. What is interesting about Frosty's resignation, and and, and those of you who know me, and you all do—we all kind of know each other. No, I don't often loathe politicians, at least, you know, when I'm giving analysis about politics. I do privately, actually, get very worked up, much more worked up than you would imagine. But Frosty has come to sort of make me go bonkers with anger. And uh, the reasons for that are the sort of, well, I'll tell you, I read a very interesting sequence of tweets from Charles Grant from the Centre for European Reform on Saturday night when Frosty announced his uh, martyrdom. Charles Grant is a very measured guy, really measured. Uh, some of you might know him. And he tweeted that negotiators at the European Union had come to hate Frost. Now, some of the Eurosceptics in the UK will think, yeah, good old Frosty, he's sorting them out, they hate him. It's a disaster. When the other side hate the chief negotiator, there is no space for many significant concessions. They don't just roll over and say, oh, well, he's wearing his Union Jack socks, he's saying no to everything, we better roll over. But that was the Frosty approach to negotiation. Also, those who knew him in his previous careers, ambassador in Denmark and then at the Whiskey Association, this sort of unlikely route to being a key negotiator deciding in effect the UK's future in the world and its trading relationship with its biggest market, um, unlikely kind of route to that role. They tell me that quite mild-mannered, strongly in favour of the single market, you know, pretty relaxed as in Europe as an ambassador, but he nursed a grievance that he didn't rise higher in that diplomatic world than Copenhagen. Although, you know, lucky Frosty, few years in Copenhagen, pretty damn nice, uh, but he thought Washington and this kind of thing. And then he ended up, working with Johnson when Johnson was Foreign Secretary, and he saw a chance to dance with a future king and became much more hardline uh, as a Eurosceptic. So many have done this. You know, Johnson himself was not a hardline Eurosceptic, became one to destroy the Brexit Party and become Prime Minister. Frost became one to become part of this court. And he moved around with a swagger, never gave interviews. I bet he starts giving interviews now because he can do it from a safe distance, but he never gave long interviews in the House of Lords. He was rather sort of, in his own kind of uncharismatic way, rather grand as he dealt with people who know much more about Europe than he does. And he was unelected. And this was reflected in his resignation letter where he claimed his resignation was because he assumed the government would follow a light regulation, low tax economy to make the most of Brexit. And because that wasn't happening, and oh yeah, of course, he joined in with the fashion within the current Tory party, as we all discussed last week, for a libertarian approach to COVID, and he expressed disapproval of that. Now, these were the views of someone detached from any forms of accountability with the voters. You know, you can sort of go around thinking, you know, oh, the reason Brexit's not working is because we're not being turbocharged Thatcherites. But what if you're a health secretary in charge with a creaking NHS that so obviously needs investment? What if... um, You're in charge of the so called levelling up agenda, and you look at the chronic need for further investment in parts of the UK. How do you get them? Is Frosty saying more borrowing? No, definitely not. Frosty would not be one of these sort of Keynesian borrowing figures. So, how does it happen? Or does he let uh, the NHS rot? Now, you can let the NHS rot as an unelected member of the House of Lords if you want because you are not accountable to the voters. And then on COVID, what's he suggesting? That um, the people have the freedom, this word freedom, again, you see Frosty will latch on to its most shallow interpretation. People have the freedom to get ill or to make others ill. And if Frosty says that, it's fine for Frosty. Uh, You know, he has the freedom to fall ill, he has the freedom to make others ill, and so on. But he does not have to face an electorate. And he does not have to be a health secretary, or indeed a prime minister, presiding over a health crisis. So, you know, it is so shallow and so sheltered. But in a way, his courtiership has done the business. He isn't now facing the consequences of his chosen Brexit route, but he's in the House of Lords with his peerage and he will now I bet give interviews because he's not accountable to the process and doesn't have to face the consequences of an unworkable situation in relation to Northern Ireland and Ireland and this is the key I tweeted on Saturday night I didn't you know no no, kind of not much on Frosty but this when these hardline Brexiteers come close to facing the practical consequences of their delusional fantasies about Britain alone, you know, global Britain. They run a mile. They do not see it through. David Davis, Brexit secretary. Do you remember him going to Brussels so confident he didn't take any notes with him compared to the prepared briefs of their counterparts in the European Union? Resigned. Steve Baker, now, just what he enjoys, Baker, is rebelling. He loves being this sort of powerful backbencher with no responsibility. Uh, You know, there he is fighting it out for Brexit. Uh, Let's trigger Article 16. Let's be freedom to be selfish with the illness and so on, COVID. He was a Brexit minister. So these people protesting now had leverage, had power, not like us lot, watching from the sidelines. But when they faced the dilemmas, they chose one route to run a mile from them. It's much easier posturing. And let's go further afield to Nigel Farage, the great hero of many Brexiteers. The day after the referendum, when Brexit was at his first phase, delivered, in inverted commas, in winning the referendum, he resigned as leader of UKIP. And so that is um, the pattern. Look at Frosty. There he was, uh, immersed in the protocol, his usual swagger, wearing a Union Jack flag, his Union Jack socks, and yet he could not, in the end, prevail, because Johnson... I mean, Frosty clearly was up for triggering Article 16 and being all macho and becoming even more of a pin-up of some Tory newspapers and the Brexiteers. But Johnson, who doesn't think through consequences, the famous word of this podcast, very often, but at least was alert to the idea that the United States would kick up one hell of a fuss if they triggered Article 16, and Sunak, who is a shallow technocratic Thatcherite, was aware that if a trade war erupted with the European Union, and it would, the impact on the economy along with Covid would have been catastrophic. So these countervailing pressures gave Johnson no choice but to be a bit more pragmatic over the protocol and to, for example, accept some role for the European Court of Justice. Now, Frosty had been going around saying, we can't do that. He's given lectures, you know, loving a... He's never had a platform, really, in his life. There he is, giving lectures about how that would be wholly unacceptable. And rather than face the reality that when two sides are involved in a negotiation, one side, incidentally, much more uh, extensively... Uh, powerful economically and in terms of numbers and all the rest of it, you have to compromise. Now, actually, Frosty has compromised on quite a few different areas, but in the end, he clearly couldn't face it. I don't think he could face the consequences of his actions. And the most fundamental one, of which, of course, was to agree at the very beginning, and parade this as a triumph, that there would be a border between uh, Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. That's where the border for the single market would be. And now Johnson was up for that because it wasn't Theresa May's proposition which was the, uh, I mean, God, what madness we've been living through, the imaginary border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland, um, with Britain in the customs union until some technological miracle could um, mean there would be no physical border. Um, So Johnson and Frosty didn't like that, so they put the border there because there has to be a border somewhere, and now they don't like the consequences. Now, Johnson has no choice but to stay put and face the consequences of his own actions, virtually for the first time in his life. And Frosty can't bear it and has left and he'll now become a critical commentator. He'll give interviews, say, I can't do Frosty's voice, but, you know, I've hardly heard him speak. But he will do it from the safety of distance where commentators, I say this as one, do not have to face consequences of decisions and actions. And he'll be everywhere now, I bet, you know, but he'll get a lucrative job in the private sector first, I suspect. Who knows? Who knows? what? It doesn't matter, really. Now, Johnson, who doesn't understand people, I don't think he gave much thought to the character of Cummings or the character of Frost, Both people, by the way, uh, Frost and Cummings were, and I suspect are, close. As I've said before about Johnson, he doesn't understand people, he understands legends. He's fascinated by mythological people, which keeps him sort of at a safe distance from any need for real contact. You know, the myth of Churchill fascinates him. Uh, He was about to write a book on Shakespeare, but real people he struggles with. And I don't think he um, understood who he was dealing with in Cummings and Frost. Cummings, uh, uh, you know, a more irascible figure, obviously, but a more intelligent figure than Frost, who had a kind of unknowing, linear approach to negotiations and no feel for politics. Why should he have? He hasn't been a politician. But anyway, I think he's done something almost clever. We'll have to see how it works out in giving the responsibility to Liz Truss, the other figure in this uh, cabinet, along with Boris Johnson, who likes dressing up, you know, that photo of her in a tank and so on. Although already her people are briefing that she's very much thinking along frosty lines, you know, and, and will have to posture to do that to boost her chances of becoming leader, she is also Foreign Secretary. And she, too, will be worried about being the Foreign Secretary that so antagonises the United States that any chance of a trade deal, or indeed any sort of semblance of a close relationship, could go. And that didn't bother Frosty. He thought Britain ruled the world, kind of thing. Um, Now, as Foreign Secretary, she's in a slightly different position. So although she will posture to the freaks uh, who... Believe every confrontation is a moment of revisiting Churchillian triumphs in the 1940s. She is a bit more constrained in her fantasies than Frost from the beginning. Frost's fantasies were only challenged when he began the negotiations and found the detail and found the the other side and, you know, that his bovaboot approach didn't work, although he convinced himself it did. She's in a slightly different position. So, it's in some ways a clever move, I think, to put her there. Now, it might mean that Johnson is in so much trouble that he tells Trust to trigger Article 16 and generate a war with Europe in a desperate attempt to solidify his base because those going for him now will revere him if he becomes a sort of leader in a war against europe but such madness to say will completely blow up the economy end relations with america and so on so it's not a straightforward route towards securing his base the by-election by the way Uh, Yeah, well, that was epic too. God, I I spoke to someone the day before who, because of the split anti-Tory vote, predicted a Tory majority of 2,000 who who had followed it very closely. The significance of it is is this, just very briefly, um, that when a prime minister who has been on a long honeymoon with voters and much of the media, when the spell is broken... Uh, in other words Johnson the vote winner becomes a vote loser it's very hard to recover the spell and when the spell is broken and people see someone in a different light they begin to see what was in front of their eyes all along not what they chose to see a prime minister's authority can fall very fast that doesn't well you can see it now with the whole covid stuff I mean even Johnson must consider that the scientists have a point with constraints. But the space he's got is so narrow uh, because his authority has diminished. A year ago, he could decide what he wanted. And, of course, early on his libertarian instincts drove him. Then, just before Christmas, he had to change his mind. Now he will not be thinking just about himself, but he'll be thinking about those uh, freakish libertarians whose views he partly shares anyway. And he's trapped. His authority has gone because voters now see what is in front of their eyes, not what they had chosen to see. So it's a big moment. That doesn't mean he's going quickly, as I argue in the book. The prime ministers we never had one of the reason why some of those uh, big big figures who never got to number ten is prime ministers aren't moved speedily or in ways that are straightforward. Attempts to remove a prime minister have consequences as well. Well, what times? You know, do you remember that era when sort of the build up to Christmas? Politics went a bit quiet, you know. Um, I can't remember when that was. Anyway, that's not the case now. There are, I've missed out loads of other themes, but probably you'll come to them. So let's go after the short break while I get the questions up to your questions.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? <clears throat>
1: questions 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 we're going to australia first of all i so say it's a bit of a frosty special and the first question is from uh, uh brian pearson from perth in australia uh he says regular listener first time question hope you're having enjoyed the sun is it really hot brian uh no danger of that here in uh, in the uk uh, regular listener now now that frosty is gone And Johnson is looking more friendless. Do you think that Keir Starmer should take Brexit head-on and try to convince voters that just as what happened after the war when Churchill won the war but wasn't trusted to win the peace, he could say Johnson won Brexit but isn't the man to carry it forward? Well, he's got to, as we've discussed many times, Brian, on this uh, podcast, he's got to say more about it, and he's got ample material to reframe the debate about what ...happens next with Brexit. And within that debate... ...to utterly condemn... ...the way Johnson and Frosty went about it. I mean, one of the many things that have been said about Frosty... ...over the last few days... ...is that there was no consultation... ...within the Cabinet or elsewhere... ...about his approach. He used to discuss it with Cummings... ...and now he obviously has to discuss it with Johnson... ...and has found that more tricky... ...because Johnson, at times... ...is forced to reflect on the consequences of Frosty's machismo. Um, Now, in all of that, there is space. And Starmer has occasionally tiptoed onto it. Rachel Reeves has, and one or two others, Emily Thornberry, and uh, there is space there. They're all still so scared of the Brexit vote. But the other interesting thing about that by-election is that in these Brexit areas, this was, of course, not Red Wall territory, but Uh, It's clearly losing its uh, electoral potency. It's it's staggering the degree to which it acquired electoral potency. But, you know, voters are irrational at times. But here was a seat, hard kind of Brexit seat, uh, where the most pro-European of UK parties won. So there's space and he needs to use it. Uh, Connor Jones from Wales. In your book on prime ministers, not the prime ministers, we never had the book on prime ministers, you noted that the cause of a prime minister's rise to the top would eventually be the thing that brings them down. With the resignation of Frosty, Could we be seeing the cause of Johnson's downfall, not from Sleaze, but from Brexit? Uh, Just to explain what Conor means, in the book on prime ministers, one of the things that fascinated me was that you could see the seeds of a prime minister's fall in their rise. Just to give one very quick example before we come to Johnson, but it applies to all of them. It applies to Blair, to others. Margaret Thatcher, her soaring rise to the top of the Tory party, was partly to do with in the build-up to the uh, leadership election in 75 when before that heath was still leader in opposition in the summer of 74 she pledged to abolish the rates the local property tax as part of the tory uh, plans for the future it was hugely popular within the tory party and beyond it was one of the few popular measures Uh, for the Tory party at that time and it turned her into a national star within the Tory party they used her for party election broadcasts there she was she was shadow environment spokeswoman uh, in the October 74 election and she thought blimey this policy to abolish the property tax is absolutely core to my rise to the wider potential for Toryism in the future and it propelled her or helped to propel her to the leadership a few months later fast forward to when she finally felt ready to abolish a property tax as prime minister she introduced the poll tax and it led and what was a factor in her fall so what propels you to the top often brings you down Now, with Johnson, I think, yes, you can see Brexit, what's that phrase, eating its advocates, there's a metaphor, isn't there, devouring its advocates or whatever. But look at the fallout already. I mentioned earlier, all the people connected with negotiating Brexit from, you know, David Davis, all that lot, gone. Um, Johnson himself resigned over it and is now... trying to work out what the hell to do with this protocol which is the direct consequence of his proposition not the European Union's so I think when he falls it will be measured partly by the Brexit fallout it was interesting Farage tweeted when Frosty resigned Frosty is a true Brexiteer Johnson isn't you can see already how the brexiteers who propelled johnson to the top are turning against him and so we don't know for sure what will bring about the fall of uh, johnson there are many candidates for that role but i think again that shakespearean arc of a theme propelling a prime minister to the top will lead to the fall and uh, as you know from the book connor that applies to virtually all prime ministers Okay, Dominic Lee. I had seen that Dominic Cummings had been active on Twitter following the resignation of Frosty, singing his praises. I wondered if there was more to this than Brexit disagreement. Cummings has often said that the vote leave team realised Johnson wasn't up to the task. Yeah, well, that's interesting. You know, the uh, there is a rapport between Frosty and Cummings. And as I say, Frosty turned to Cummings for guidance when Cummings was in number 10, when he was carrying out some of his disastrous Brexit negotiations. And um, they've stayed in touch, clearly. I mean, Cummings sings his praises, and he doesn't sing everybody's praises on Twitter. Whether there are wider kind of implications, mean, Frosty is not really a political player. He doesn't have allies, he's not from politics, he's from the Foreign Office uh, originally. And so I suspect Frosty's uh, limited kind of agency in what follows, actually. Cummings, I think, you know, although he's an unreliable narrator, I'm I'm, I'm struck by how many people cite him, you know, commentators and so on. He, he's making an impact on the way Johnson is perceived, and, and not least in, in this new context where voters are seeing what's in front of their eyes, not what they choose to see. A uh, bit more on this. I said it was a frosty special. Uh, Will Gregory uh, says, David Frost seems to have found himself caught between the tough guy zealotry of the spectator echo chamber and the economic and political realities, hence the briefing behind his back on the European Court of Justice climb down last week, which seems the trigger for his departure. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly the kind of thing that was going on. Whose fingerprints do you see on this? The Treasury and Rishi Sunak? Some vestige of grown uppery in number 10? Yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, by the way, Will says, the current running time of about an hour matches my dog walk in the woods to perfection. Okay, Will, that's great. Uh, I hope you're having a good walk this morning, whatever morning you're listening. Or is it the evening? I, I kind of like the idea of the woods. It must be during the morning with the light at this time of year. Well, someone brief that? I've no idea who, um, but there are... Some sensible people, uh, certainly in the Treasury, not necessarily Sunak himself, but certainly in the Treasury, but they wouldn't be involved in this. I'm not sure who. I'm not sure who uh, briefed it, um, but clearly Frosty saw all this partly as uh, an opportunity for him to posture as the strong man, and was going to find it very painful to concede on something he has publicly said he would not move on. Uh, so I think uh, that is the sequence as to his um, uh, departure. No idea who leaked it. Um, sorry not to resolve that as you walk your dog, Will. Okay, um, uh, Tony Ellis. Oh, we're moving on a bit. Are we from Frosty? Yeah, a bit, uh, bit of stuff from other fields. Or Well, there I say, it all connects. It seems certain now that Boris Johnson will be gone sooner or later after the past week's shenanigans. It's kind of panto season there. Is there a scenario the multiple Downing Street inquiries underway or about to start or not yet even begun lead to a Commons vote of no confidence and a general election? No, Tony, that won't happen. There is no way the Tory MPs with that huge majority... Um, are going to vote for an election which would see them in the current context losing their seats I think the election I've always thought the election wouldn't come especially early Uh, if it is Johnson there um, he is alert to the fact that voters we're so untypical voters don't follow politics resent early elections Um, they for sure isn't going to come in the near future with that majority Tory MPs are not going to be chickens voting for christmas to use that terrible no what is it not chickens turkeys um to use that terrible cliche so no there's not going to be an election there might be a change of prime minister in england being largely a one-party state you know the tory electorate is the Tory membership have the power to change prime ministers so that might well happen although I wouldn't put huge amounts of money on it based on my experience of the prime ministers we never had because prime ministers tend to stay longer than the feverish speculation about their future suggests Jim Taylor I've been a regular listener to the podcast for over two years now that's great great Jim as well as a regular so all the way through actually all the way through the twists and turns as well as a regular attendee of your rock and roll politics edinburgh fringe shows prior to covid hope to come back this summer jim let's see how this covid dark saga develops Well, oh, i love the show thank you very much and listen to it every week whilst walking my dog and not oh right you, you don't meet up um with um tony walking his dog was it tony who walked his dog no no it wasn't tony it was uh, sorry i'm going crazy it was will he walked his dog um, I, th- I think you're doing it separately uh you certainly are actually because you're walking uh near uh, on the glorious sections of the berwickshire coastal path oh living the dream uh, what a great place to walk anyway jim's wondering about how labour can expect to return to a majority government in the face of the collapse of its scottish vote with certainly no signs of a resurgence of scottish labour uh, yeah, it's it's odd. I mean, they've well, not odd. I mean, I, we know. I think we know why the SNP is still so strong. The potency of independence as a theme. Labour in Scotland now have got a very good leader and it's still not making much difference to the polls. With the numbers stacked against them in this way, how can Labour hope to win a majority at the next or successive elections? This may tie into your current trending topic of PR. A new new electoral reform would be in there. Or calls for a progressive alliance. Well, Jim, I think there is another way, which we saw at the by-election, and this happened in the build-up to the '97 election as well, that voters can clock... There's a sort of informal anti-Tory alliance in place, certainly with Labour and the Lib Dems. I mean, Ed Davey has said he is part of an anti-Tory force in in a way that Paddy Ashdown did in the build-up to '97. Uh, But I don't think it can be formalised. Party members are committed to their parties, by definition, more than anyone else, as they wouldn't be members. And it becomes very difficult to tell them to formally not campaign, in effect, for their party. But I think you can do it in other ways. Um, But um, there is a lot of talk around of a sort of progressive alliance as the only way. And as you say, partly because Labour just cannot seem to get back in Scotland, a collapse that is remains so much is happening in politics but that is one of the more extraordinary things that's happened followed then by of course the red wall for reasons that are not uh, entirely unrelated i suspect okay gillian charlesworth just listen to the first half of your latest podcast on the sofa as always, um, just finished work for a three-week break. Oh, you're not going to be on the sofa for the whole three weeks, Gillian, I hope. I can't get my head around this weird combination of uh, Thatcherism, free market and small state, as espoused by the likes of Frosty, authorita- from the safe distance of not having to face the electorate, authoritarianism, curb courts, uh, protests, media elections. And libertarianism—the freedom to ignore health safety measures—does it have a name or a president? And how can it be countered? Yeah, I, when you put it like that, it is what a what a mix. And indeed, when I talk about these Tory libertarians, this um, freakishly large proportion of the parliamentary Tory party, uh, people do email me and say, "Well, they, it's selective libertarianism." Because they're quite happy to impose authoritarian uh, new rules on courts or uh, people uh, taking part in voting in an election, Um, so it is it is selective. Uh, There there is no name, uh, Gillian, but it is it is incoherent and dangerous. Actually, this mix. To take a more benevolent view, it's it's a, a conservative party in a state of churn, and they they. I think I've talked about this before, you know, you can see signs with Theresa May and indeed Boris Johnson of moves away from the sort of free market, small state ideology of Thatcherism, which has framed the Tory party in, uh, I mean, there are parallels with the Republican Party in the US, but not really in Europe. If you look at the Christian Democrats, they're way to the left of the modern Tory party. But they weren't way to the left in the era of Heath and going back Macmillan and all that kind of thing. And you can see, you know, that, that with May, that let's talk about the good that government can do. And Johnson, with some of his interventionism, albeit in a chaotic way, attempts to move them on. But they can't do it, and then you with with this, you know, the membership and the parliamentary party, and so you get this chaos. Anyway, uh, so yeah, let's call it chaos. I can't think of a deeper term, really, Gillian. Okay, Andy Kerry from Edinburgh, glorious Edinburgh. Can I echo your correspondent from last week, who said his vote has never counted in a British general election? I told you, you know, those of you worried that we were focusing on frosty, I told you, electoral reform will come back. This is from Simon Duffin, who has been our correspondent before, revealed dramatically that uh, uh, a drive to um, in Aus- Australia went badly wrong. He's going back to Australia in January with the prospect of voting in my first federal election over there in the first of half of next year. I haven't yet fathomed their preference PR system, but I'm keen to give it a go. Apparently, Australia introduced this system as early as 1918, at the time because there were two more Conservative parties, thus splitting the right and letting Labour in in several seats with a small percentage of the vote. But it was the bigger of the Conservative parties which introduced this change as it was in their interests if they were to stay in power. Voting systems are always changed out of self-interest not altruism. Uh, Sorry, that's me speaking. Simon wonders, a mirror image of the UK right now, but perhaps a a lesson for Labour here. Uh, Yes, Simon, uh, nice to hear from you. Enjoy your return to Australia. Here is the thing. Labour are split as to what is in itself interest in relation to electoral reform. It always has been. It was in the mid-90s and um, before... Uh, Neil Kinnock came round to it in uh, 1992. Others, John Smith was a sceptic but uh, agreed to propose a referendum on the issue. Tony Blair was definitely a sceptic but uh, promised a referendum but they never held it. And while that ambiguity is in place uh, about self-interest, which is what it's all about, and the Lib Dems aren't doing campaigning for electoral reform for purist reasons, but self-interested ones – while that's there, I think this whole debate is theoretical. But that moment might come, Simon, where there is a coali- there is a kind of potent coalition of support within Labour for electoral reform. Thank you very much. And to say, Andy Carey from Edinburgh, sorry, I slipped a question uh, on Keir Starmer's chances of becoming prime minister. It would be enhanced by leading a coalition of all the opposition. So sort of linked to where Simon was a sort of everything but the Tories would be a great coalition. And in terms of divvying up seats, the participating parties have tons of voters to define who would take a given seat and and accept some ruthless self-assessment to divvy them up to get the best results. It's not going to happen, Andy. The ruthless self-assessment will not happen. It's too painful at a local level. Claire Mackey, I feel increasingly frustrated at the disproportionate impact Steve Baker seems to exert on my everyday life. He has managed to influence government policy by pushing for the hardest possible Brexit and objecting to timely public health measures. And now it looks likely that he will try to fight um, on action on climate change too. I disagree with him on almost everything. Uh, but I must admit that he's very effective in pursuing his agenda. Yeah, there are people, Claire, that come into politics not interested by the responsibilities and compromises of power. They think they are, but they're not. And as we've already discussed, he was a Brexit minister who resigned, but who relish the role of leading backbenchers uh, to various insurrectory causes. And he does hold considerable power because partly again it goes back to brexit johnson uh formed an alliance with these uh evangelical figures of the right and feels compelled to listen to them and is frightened about alienating them and so yeah he he wields uh, quite a lot of power but he does not want to face the responsibilities of power there is a kind of fantastical element there was a leak of um a whatsapp exchange with baker and others the other day of texts with other mps you know and um it was after the frosty resignation and they're loving it they're enjoying it being disloyal to the leadership even though the leadership is really pretty close to them on most issues yeah we're in a dangerous place at the moment with a governing party that needs to change in ways that go well beyond its leader well beyond chris park in your last episode you discussed the current state of the tory party you go blimey i'm doing it again um in the new recent new labor documentary various figures were asked to define new labor Tony Blair's definition was of effective public services being provided by the state while also encompassing the concept of choice and a role for internal and external market forces within state services. It struck me that this vision was probably most closely aligned to centre-right Christian Democrat parties in other Northern European parties and was maybe even to the right of those parties on the role of the state. Uh, Yeah, and he goes on to say... You know, there's a group, Jeremy Hunt, David Gork, Rory Stewart, sort of centrist Tories inverted commas. And is um, uh, Tony Blair closer to them? Yeah, I think he is. I think one of the things that Labour has to get is the Tories are still coming to terms with Margaret Thatcher, as you know, I've kind of discussed. Her influence remains huge, and the attempts to move on, as any party must, from a figure. Of the 80s, their attempts have been painful and uh, limited, and uh, punctuated by uh, chaos. And Labour have not really placed Tony Blair, but that's where I think uh, he is. He is placed. He would be at one in many things with uh, David Gork and Rory Stewart, and. And the Christian Gem- Democrats in Germany, um, I think it's quite hard to place him as left of centre. Which is why, incidentally, he kind of, you know, in a slightly grand way, he's not a grand personality. He's he's he's, he's self deprecating, although he's got an ego, of course. Do you remember he said, "Look, the era of left and right is over. Right, it's open versus closed." And, you know, he said it with such certainty and all the, you know, Twitterati, brilliant, brilliant observation. It's so kind of self-serving and naive, you know, because he can't really place himself on the left where he kind of should be as a leader of the or former leader of the Labour Party. He says there is no such thing as left or right, only open versus closed. Open versus closed has been a divide through the centuries. And it's a constant one. Look at the split in the Tory party over tariff reform or, you know, the corn laws of uh, the 1840s. It's happened now over Europe and, you know, free trade versus protectionism. It is a profound and important divide. But that's not new. And it doesn't mean there is also a significant left-right debate um but uh, lots of people disagree with me about that uh, but i noticed tony never used to say left or center you say radical. i'm of the radical center right anyway uh interesting uh, god look at the time and you've got christmas shopping if we're allowed out gareth jones writes i'm right to you from chicago where i'm staying with in-laws Uh, perhaps avoiding the worst of the Omicron wave in the UK. Well, you'll certainly avoid it in the UK if you're in Chicago, Gareth, but it might be in Chicago as well, I don't know. Uh, I was inspired to get in touch after your discussion of Keir Starmer. It reminded me of my belief that the commentariat and indeed Labour members place too much emphasis on policy strategy and not enough on presentation and communication skills. Starmer reminds me of Ed Miliband in that no matter how much he rehearses, he doesn't come across as comfortable or convincing in contrast with Lisa Nandy and Andy Burnham and, indeed, Wes Streeting. Yeah, well, you are right that he is still quite wooden, Keir Starmer. And I can see he is over-rehearsing a bit his projection in the House of Commons, and on in interviews. Um, it doesn't come to him instinctively and naturally, and then if you look as if you are kind of consciously performing, it becomes a performance, and that in itself is problematic. However, he is getting better, and he has had a period where the juxtaposition between solidity, which he personifies, and chaos... And lack of integrity, as personified by Johnson and Number 10, has become much darker and clearer. So let's see how it pans out in the coming months. But he's clearly in a better place. When you're ahead in the polls and the governing party is in difficulty, huge difficulties, uh, or certainly the Prime Minister, uh, but I would say the whole governing party, the way an opposition leader is perceived changes completely. Uh, From being perceived as a sort of doomed loser, you become seen as a potential Prime Minister. Um, And I think he might be, in the coming months, moving into that slot. That doesn't mean you become Prime Minister, but the perception helps in your attempt uh, to become Prime Minister. Uh, Stephen Lamb says, I heard Chris Patton on, Prime Minister- on PM last week saying the Conservative Party is now the English Nationalist Party. Do you agree? Yeah, I kind of, Yeah, that is where th- what they have become. Uh, they, they sort of subsumed the Brexit Party and have become that. Uh, for me, the likes of Clark, Heseltine and Patton were once integral. Uh, the Johnson-Cummings 2019 purge critically narrowed, perhaps uh, corrupted their outlook. Um, uh, so yeah, and Stephen uh, says, Happy Christmas to us all and here's to the crazy politics of 2022. Okay, look, I think we better call it in. There are loads more. Sorry, I haven't got to them. But what I'm going to do is uh, save them, and hopefully get a chance to uh, read them when we all gather again on um, that first kind of Monday, Tuesday in uh, January. Uh, In the meantime... It just leaves me to say this. I mean, it's going to be another crazy political week, actually. And by the time you've heard this, you'll know what will have happened on um, the uh, constraints uh, vis-a-vis COVID. I think we can sort of guess, or I can, you might have heard formally what Johnson so incarcerated now uh, with no room to space, what he's going to do. But we will see. But look, it's been an epic political year and it's been a joy sharing it with you and trying to make sense of it with all of you. Uh, uh, so thank you all for listening. Uh, say, so if you could leave a review and, kind of, and subscribe, they're the two key things to um, make sure you carry on getting it automatically. But just leave me say, have a brilliant Christmas, wherever you are in the UK and around the world. And we will gather again every week in 2022, to try and make sense of it all. Thank you very much. Have a brilliant time. Take care. Bye.